Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nelson. Well, I want to say again, um, welcome to you. And uh, this morning, we've been looking through uh, seven churches of Revelation, but as you can see, we're taking a little hiatus uh, because of an event that um, many of you read an email about, maybe even knew, know the Llewellyn family. But when loss happens uh, in a church, whether it's something we directly are affected by or not, uh, I wonder how it impacts you. I was talking the other day, uh, just, you know, as 9-11 is coming closer, I was talking to somebody the other day, where were you when? And I remember being in Dallas, Texas, looking at a, a, a screen and seeing the events of 9-11 unfold, and it just seemed completely surreal to me. I didn't know how to make connection to it. I was thinking, gosh, this is devastating, but... What do I do? And just found myself facing this loss that would unpack for obviously months and years, even to this day. Um, What does it do for us? And there have even been articles written about that impact in this regard um, that I thought was interesting. If you read about 9-11 and you look up things regarding it every year, there's kind of a dividing line. Some people are thinking we need to move on, and some people are saying we need to embrace 9-11. And even the articles often that say we need to embrace what 9-11 has brought us sometimes can push it in a patriotic way. But there have been a few really good ones that have said, how are we embracing not just 9-11 as an event, but what it really pushes in us in embracing grief and loss? not forgetting that, not moving past it quickly. I I don't know what it was like for you to receive that email. Maybe you were in this room and visiting and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about with that email. We have a family that, that received devastating news when their son took his own life. And it sent shockwaves, not just in a sense to one location, but all. And they have wanted people to know about what's going on in their family. I think that's amazing. Because they know that we need to engage grief. How do we as a church respond to grief? How do we respond to sorrow and loss? And this morning, look, I want to make a a, a very big disclaimer that I'm not going to stand up here and try and be a psychologist. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not a therapist. I want to unpack a passage for us as a pastor, but I do want to give thanks and um, appreciation to uh, many, like even my wife who's a therapist and others who, John Cox is a friend of mine, he's a, a, a clinical psychologist and others who have given me language to help understand how do we unpack sorrow and even the difference between that and what depression is and how do we engage with depression. 
and what these kind of things uh, mean for us as Christians. What does it mean for us? These verses in this text we're reading from come out of what's called one of many, the suffering servant. And it's one of actually several songs in the book of Isaiah, which is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. It's a pretty big book. And one of these songs, and this song would be somewhat like a country song, actually. It is a song regarding someone who is dealing with major loss, major grief, and is completely misunderstood. And that is this song. We're getting to read it. It is one of the largest chunks of passage that echoes throughout the whole Old and New Testament. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus and what he did for us, why we talk about him going to the cross, why we talk about him engaging death, this actually gives the language and descriptors and music even to his pain that is ours. And it is very simple. There are two things that we're to get from this short passage. One is that he was acquainted with grief. This is one who's acquainted with grief. And two is that he bore our griefs. He's acquainted with them and he bore them. And, and, and when it talks about that, acquainted with grief, I want to even go back up a little bit in verse 3. It says this of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Acquainted with grief and man of sorrows. One who actually took this on. And I think this set of verses should tell us something larger here. That we, if we are really following what this is saying, that we as followers of God, followers of the suffering servant, should actually understand how to grieve well. And I think often we don't. I think often this, this even passage is saying, even in verse 4, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted, uh, smitten by God and afflicted. There's a, there's a setup between a we and a he there. And the we there is standing aloof watching this person. This is the picture of one grieving and kind of going, oh, I don't know what to do with that person. It's a dismissal. It's a rejection. And for decades, I think people have been walking through grief and in Christian circles and especially in thinking that if we encounter sorrow, if we, if we really address our pain with the gift that God has given, given us in it called sadness, that we are not being faithful. And that is false. That is what it is saying. Listen to this. In the New Yorker, written just a couple years ago, an article called Good Grief, was written this. It was about the, in the 60s when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross developed the five, five stages of grief. And here was kind of the, the tagline for the article, that it captured the imagination of people. But grief can be far messier and tenacious. Listen to what she says. Perhaps the stage theory of grief caught on so quickly because it made loss sound controllable. The trouble is that it turns out largely to be fiction based more on an anecdotal observation than empirical evidence. Though Cuba Ross captured the range of emotions that mourners experience, new researchers suggest that grief and mourning don't follow a checklist. 
They're complicated, untidy processes. And like the progression of stages and more like an ongoing process, sometimes one that never fully ends. Perhaps the most enduring psychiatric idea about grief, for instance, is the idea that people need to let go in order to move on. Yet studies have shown that some mourners hold on to a relationship with the deceased with no notable effects. At the end of her life, Kubler-Ross herself recognized how far astray our understanding of grief had gone. Now listen, she even wrote this on her, in her new write, in that her last writing before her death called On Grief and Grieving. She insisted that the stages were never meant to help tuck messy emotions into neat packages. And I want to say to us, that is a very helpful thing in terms of just globally. I think that we have done that with Christianity often. I think often we could even look at that and ask the question, how have we used verses or things, a religiosity to cover the actual grief we are to engage, which actually says he's a man of grief, acquainted with it, close to it, nearby, up front, embracing it. The New Yorkers talking about that as a whole Are we packaging loss and sorrow in a way that makes people come into this room and look and say, what makes this church different from any other? Why be a Christian? Honestly, let's ask that question. Why be a Christian if it just is another neat package that helps us try and deal with life? What is so different about it? Or is it something more? I think it's amazing that it draws out here that it says, yet we esteemed him not stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. This group that's standing off, looking at the servant, almost as if we could do that because we have such a hard time engaging grief on an ongoing basis and not just in that way, but with one another. As I have learned from my friends who are in categories of therapy and psychology further than me that are Christians, and look at the Bible intently, they have encouraged me to see over and over in my own grief and my own loss, whether it's as we read this morning in a psalm that says how long, a pain that goes on and on. There's a reason that David says how long four to five times in that psalm. Because sometimes it goes on and on. Why do we, why do we worship a, a God who comes in a form of a man and dies on a cross? Because the reality of suffering and grief is to be embraced. God has given us the gift of sadness to deal with our pain. And we need to take it up. Where, many in this room, many in you, you may be in this place. Maybe you're here even this, this morning and you're, and you're wondering how to manage sadness. You're wondering, can I even share sadness with anybody in this room? And how easy is it for us to cut ourselves off from handling that? But we need to learn how to grieve well. Because the healthiest way to engage pain is sadness. That's why God gives us. This is why he's a man of sorrows. This is why Jesus talks about, what does he say? Blessed are those who mourn. This is why when he experiences those who die, it says literally when one of his dearest friends, Lazarus, dies in the book of John which is a narrative account of Jesus impacted by one of his own friend's death. This is Jesus. 
that when he hears of his death, when he gets to this tomb, he responds in a way of such utter grief that it says in Greek that he shook like an animal and he snorted like a bull because he encountered death. This is Jesus. This is the one who takes on the sin of the world, and yet he encounters it in that way. If we want to be wise men and women, as Ecclesiastes says, we need to enter into the house of mourning because it is better than the house of feasting. Because it says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness a face of the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's different. Sadness and encountering that pain, and some of us are going through such pain right now that the only way we've learned and wanted to address it is by disconnecting ourselves to it. And that is actually the definition of depression. Many people will often use sadness and depression in the same line, like that person's really depressed. But what depression actually is, is a disconnect. It is a disengagement. It is encountering such a pain for so long that is so hard that you just really don't have the energy anymore. And some of you might be in that place. Some of you may have been in that place or are now currently because of a pain, of a loss, maybe of a child, maybe of a friend. Maybe of something of a divorce. Maybe something of, of some sort of broken relationship that you have that has disengaged you so much and you just can't stand it. And if you live though, and here's the thing, if we live in a world, in this world well, what it's saying is, it's saying we must learn to engage our hearts with that pain. Because depression is real, and, and there are, what, what, is the, what is the healing form of that? What does the Bible say? What does it tell us to do? It says we can disconnect. We can disconnect from ourselves in that pain if it's too much, right? We just shut ourselves off. And what else do we do? We shut others off. What, there's so much research right now. We've talked about it ad nauseum in our church about how loneliness and isolation has become one of the greatest epidemics in our country. Think about that crossing over with us engaging depression. And you have a cocktail of enormous proportion that is so staggering and, and it disassociates us. It takes us out of relationship with the Lord and others and even within ourselves. And I know that it is so difficult to think how do we re-engage? There's... There's a book that I love by actually a clinical psychologist and a, and a seminary professor who wrote it together called Cry of the Soul. And they write this about our souls. They said, we forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Only face to face with our deepest and ruling passions is there hope of redeeming the fabric of our inner world. It is connecting to both God and other people. Because the scariest part is what we read in verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray and all have turned everyone to his own way. It means that's an isolating word. It's to say, we've got it. We don't need help. Are we a place, and maybe you're in this room and I'm asking, I'm begging you. If you are in a place where you have disconnected, disassociated yourself and you find yourself in a numbing place toward pain, 
Look and see, are you disconnected with everyone else around you? With God, with yourself even. Bring, invite, have people come to you face to face. Have people see you there. Because what that means, turning to our own way, is us giving this impression, this shell, like we do to everyone. And we come in the room and we do this. And I'm about to say something that some of you are going to say, well, I'm not going to tell everybody. But you know when somebody asks you how you're doing, everybody goes, I'm doing great. I'm fine. It's not that you need to dump out everything. But are we real? Are we creating a shell in our grief and our sadness, do we have people that actually know us? That actually engage us there? One of the most sad, difficult parts is that there's a theologian named Martin Lloyd-Jones is when you get in that place and he calls it the over-dissection of the soul. Listen to what he says. He says, I suggest we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. And with when such self-examination becomes the main and chief of our life. It is that we turn ourselves so inward that we begin to over-dissect our souls, he said, to when there's nothing left. What changes pain and suffering? What helps re-engage that? Because that can be such a difficult place. When you're in a depressed place, it can feel like, why would I ever want to get back into that place or actually encounter suffering and grief? Why would I want that if it's cut off? Because the greatest form of healing is that one across from you. This is why God gives us each other. One of the worst parts about that can happen in the American church, if you read, is the fact that we all come as individuals to worship, but how are we looking face to face with one another? How are we engaging? This is why we, we come to a table and eat together. This is why he gives us this hope. Again, a cry of the soul. He says, in many ways, hope is intangible. It is a concept or a feeling, but on a practical level, it is tangible. In a sense, people incarnate hope. Here's what it's like. And you may have experienced this before. Because I have two wonderful boys in our house, three of us total, so our house is in a constant mess, bless my wife's heart. With my eight-year-old, I'll often go into his room and if it is just disheveled and stuff everywhere, I'll go in and I'll say, hey, it's time to clean up your room. Normal everyday thing. But there are moments when he will do that, other moments when he'll say, hey, will you, st- will you help me? Will you help me clean this up? And I think in my head, okay, I didn't make this mess. You made this mess, but I'll stay in here with you. In my own self-righteous sense as a parent. And as I begin to clean up and pull things off the ground, here's one of the most amazing things I've encountered is that he will actually clean up more. He gets a sense that it's his room, that I'm with him. He doesn't even think about it. He starts moving things around, putting them in their order because he's not alone. Pain is like that. It is like going into your room of your heart and it is one big room and there is stuff everywhere. It feels like you don't know where to turn and it is not that other person's mess, but when you let someone into that room to help you clean it, to help you organize some of it, 
even to point things out in it. There is something about that relational connection. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And if you've not experienced that, I am begging you to find a friend that knows you, that knows the depths of you. There is a reason that the disassociation of depression moves beyond that. And many of us in this room have popped that candy into our mouth and rolled it around and thought, what would it be like for me to cut myself off from this whole world? But to have people look at us, even hold our mess in our room of our heart and to sit with us is a whole new level. Emily Dickinson wrote a poem regarding this and it has blown my mind lately since I've read it. Hear what she says about this. I measure, it's called I measure every grief. She says, I measure every grief I meet with narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. I wonder if they bore it long or did it just begin. I could not tell the date of mine. It feels so old a pain. I wonder if it hurts to live and if they have to try and whether could they choose between it would not be to die. I note that some gone patient long at length renew their smile. An imitation of a light that has so little oil. I wonder if years have piled up some thousands on the harm that hurt them early such a lapse could give them such a balm. Here's the beauty of what we're doing this morning. And I'm... The difference is this sermon doesn't end there. If all we're doing is being acquainted with grief... We don't understand that there's someone who bore our grief. Here's the difference. And that poem slaughters me because of this. We walk around and we measure our pain with everybody else. And what helps us understand that measure is being in relationship with each other. But here's the kicker. You want to know what's different in Christianity than anything else is the fact that all of our pain, all of our pain has been measured, weighed, and engaged by one whom it says, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. See, Jesus was acquainted with grief and so must we be, but here's the difference. It is that he takes it on. He puts it on himself. I, I remember being at Vanderbilt and having a huge debate with someone, a Jewish academic, about this particular passage. And this is why Isaiah 53 needs to be understood. Who is this suffering servant? That was the debate. And the thing that I kept coming back to with my friend that I was debating with is to say, this has to be the Messiah. This has to be the one in Jesus because every part of this in verse five 
and 6 is talking about a substitute in our pain. That he's not only acquainted with it, but that he bore it, he carried it, he was pierced, crushed. There is a substitution. And if we take Jesus out of being our substitution for our pain, then we have no hope. How do we display, look, we like everyone, even if you're here this morning, you may not be a Christian. You may be entering into the doors and saying, wow, this is super heavy. But what I'm saying to you, hear me say this, it doesn't matter whether you're in this room and you would say you're a follower of Jesus or not, we all share grief, every single person. Everyone has a story. Isn't it the beauty of that, that book and even the movie Wonder? Is that that child wears his his suffering on his face and on his life and everyone bears it but we may not see it. We all have it. And yet Jesus comes and he says he becomes one that men hid their faces from. He becomes a substitute for our sadness. And if we don't have a substitute, look, then the sermon stops there. Then we don't come to this table How did he bear them? He bore them by coming in and instead of saying, hey, I'll help you clean your room. Instead of saying, yeah, I'll let you, I'll do my half. Jesus goes into the room of our hearts and he says, you made this mess. This is all of it, but you know what? I can't wait to clean it up for you. It says he was crushed and pierced. The word pierced is a word that means fatally wounded. It actually means that your sin didn't pierce Jesus. That's not what it means. It means that God pierced Jesus. It's an act, it's a word meaning that he received it from God on behalf of your sin and mine. It is an intentional wound, a fatal one that he goes in. The word crushed, that he was crushed for our iniquities is actually the word used all through the Bible for people trampling and running on top of someone to kill them. That Jesus took this, our sin, our iniquity, by him the chastisement, we brought peace and by his wounds, We are healed. Here's the beauty of this. It's the fact that we have a Savior, Jesus, who extended, who encountered pain, encountered sorrow to the fullest degree and never detached himself. Hear what I'm saying. Jesus never moved into into depression. And you know why? Because he had to engage the pain of our sin and our sorrow and our grief so far that there was no way he would detach himself from you or me. Can you imagine being in a relationship with someone where they know every sin about you and they don't detach from you? If you have seen the eyes of someone across from you where you have shared something that you did against them And they could hold against you forever. And yet, they didn't detach from you. They didn't push away. They didn't say, leave me. They came in and cleaned and said, let me take on the wounds, the blows that you deserve that I will take. 
Here's what this table is. This is a table that proves, proves Jesus never, ever disconnected from your pain, ever. One of the greatest stories that I love to read with my boys is Runaway Bunny. You read this? It's a story about a little baby bunny who says, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run away from you, mommy. I'm gonna hide. I'm gonna turn into, you know, a boat and sail away from you. I'm gonna turn into a fish and swim away from you. And every single time, the mama bunny says, if you run away, I'll come after you because you're my little bunny. And the most amazing thing about that story is it ends, sorry to ruin it for you. It ends with the baby bunny saying, well, you know what? Well, I'll just stay in your arms because this is where I'll be. There is no place that Jesus is not touched with his pain for you. This table gives hope that we don't end with just that he was acquainted with our grief, that he bore it, and that when you taste this body and blood, you're tasting a savior that knows every inch, every molecule, every place where you have had suffering, sorrow, pain, and loss. And he doesn't want to detach and he wants you to attach to him. Come here, connect to this God and feel even the shoulders you bump into as you come up here. And look, don't look down, don't look at the music today. I want you to look at the people walking up and down the aisle because these are the people who are the same sufferers and grievers as you. And they around you, find someone that knows you here to experience that on this level as well. Let's stand together.